Hi, this is the podcast channel of Lighthouse Church in Ottawa, Canada. We are a family. We don't do life alone. We are about the one, each and every one. Thank you so much for tuning in today. Our hope and prayer is always for life change. Here is today's message. Be blessed as you listen. Good morning, Lighthouse family. How's everyone doing? I hope you're doing great. (laughs) I hope you're well. I'm going to jump into the Word of God. Today is really more like a discussion. I hope I don't, I don't be, I hope I'm not too teaching today. I just want to have, it's a reminder actually. And so that's important. But you know, as as we do this week in, week out, there's a very strong tendency for us, all of us, you and I, to get to a point in our relationship with God, in our Sunday you know, um, in the in the the recurring Sunday experience, to think, why are we why are we doing this? Or even just from hearing sermons and teachings over and over again, after a while, you become you kind it kind of loses its allure. I think if you have if you don't have the right mindset, if you're not thinking about it the right way. But I want to assure you about something that you're not wasting your time. You know, you can be anywhere in the world right now. You could be sleeping in your bed. You could be you know, watching a movie, you could be doing anything. You could be having brunch, you know, having crepes and eggs or something. I feel like I just made some people hungry. Um, but you're not. You're here. You're seated, maybe. Maybe you're lying down under the covers where you're in church. All right, you're about to listen to the Word of God. I assure you that, especially when we, you know, the kind of teachings we've been doing over the past year about where we started focusing more on building the total disciple, people who can stand on their own two feet, people who are mature, people who can do life and go through life without, you know, some of the crises that Christians run into, you are not wasting your time, I assure you, all right? So when you're, you know, 10, 15 years down the line, you know, when you realize the value of the investment that's being made in you guys by the quality and the types of teachings that the leadership and the teaching team brings to you, um, I just expect that, you know, will be I'll, someone will knock on my door one day and it's a delivery for me or for, you know, Bishop or for Toby. And it's a Tesla. You're just saying with a note that just says, thank you for the teachings. They really shaped our lives. All right. We don't want to meet you down the road 10 years later, 12 years from now. And you have, you've had three ex-wives and one ex-husband. The same person. Anyways, never mind. <laughs> yeah, get, your life would be in order. You will be progressing. You will be thriving because we are building structures. You know, a lot of times, you know, and there's a tendency for that in church. If we, if we keep giving you the paint jobs and the finishing, it's nice to look at the finishings in the house. But the truth is that the paint is not hanging by itself. It's hanging on a, on a structure. We are putting the bricks together, the walls together, dividing the rooms, all right, putting pillars in place for you so that you can build something that lasts. So don't be discouraged. You are not wasting your time. I don't feel, I don't understand why I feel the need to say that, but you are not wasting your time. You're not wasting your time. We're building structures that would last a lifetime. Let's be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 7 this morning as I start. This is the last day where we speak from 2 Corinthians, at least for this series letters. And then next week we move into a new letter, which is Galatians. Galatians. So I'm excited about that. Thanks to all the people who have brought fantastic teachings to us through the months um, from the, you know, the letter series. We will continue to do that. And as we do that, we will all continue to grow together in Jesus' name. 2 Corinthians 8 and the 7th. The 7th verse. I'm going to read NLT today. It says, since you excel in so many ways, you excel in so many ways in your faith, your gifted speakers, your eloquence, you have the gift of gab, your knowledge, your bright, your enthusiasm, you have passion for God. And your love from us, you excel in all these things. I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. I want you, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church, which we know too well at this point. We want you to excel also, also in this gracious act of giving. title of our conversation today is Excellence in Generosity. Excellence in generosity excellence in generosity 
know, when you read the book of Second Corinthians, um, you realize that Paul devotes the majority of two whole chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9, to the topic of giving and generosity. He's writing to the Corinthian church. Like I said, we know a bit about this church now. They were a bit of a messed up church in, in, in the first Corinthian letter. But then after Paul wrote to them, after Paul visited them, things have started to get better. You know, they're starting to get, they're starting to act right, okay? They started to get their senses back in order. And so Paul is now writing his last and final letter to them, well, that recorded in, for us. And he's addressing a lot of different issues. He's addressed things like the imposter syndrome, which Tola talked about. He addressed things like the new creation realities. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Aren't you glad that all things, everything has become new? Um, he's addressed critical issues, all right, about, you know, the proof of an, of an apostle, as it were. And then he gets to chapter 8 and chapter 9, and he focuses on the subject of giving and generosity. Two whole chapters, and they're not short chapters. I mean, ver I mean, chapters, by the way, they are long chapters, and he talks about generosity. And so for us as a house, this is important because it aligns properly with our values. When we talk about the lighthouse values, we know that generosity is one of them. We say Jesus, only Jesus is our message. People are our heart. We say love is our brand, all right? We want to be branded by hot, passionate love for people, all right? We say that honor, honor is our code, all right? So if we're a secret society, which we are not, by the way, and I feel like I need to say that we are not a secret society, you can join us wherever you are. You know how secret societies have a secret handshake? Honor is our code. It's the way we live. We honor up, honor sideways, we honor down. And we say that excellence is our aspiration and generosity is our way of life. So Paul brings these two values together, talks about being excellent, in generosity talks about being excellent in generosity and so this is important for us obviously that we talk about is by the way giving is not our way of life generosity is our way of life and i i did a teaching on generosity must have been not last year the year before and i told you that giving and generosity are not the same thing you can give but not every gift is a generous gift so i can give you something but i haven't been generous but if i give you a generous gift it speaks to the substance of the gift it speaks to the heart that gave it it speaks to um the proportion you know compared to what it is that i have and all that so generosity is a level above giving giving is not our way of life we aspire to be a generous house and generosity is our way of life and when you say something is your way of life it's something that when people come in contact with you and people spend a short amount of time around you, it's one of the things that they notice about you. You can't say that you have a culture that is unseen. So if you, for example, if you say that, oh, well, the culture in my family is that we are, you know, we, we love each other. That's our culture in our family. Um, talking about your, your nuclear family, your house now, your family, where you, you know, your blood relations or what have you. And then people come and visit you and then you guys are always bringing out knives, you know, fighting each other in the streets. It becomes very obvious that that's not your culture. So your culture, sometimes you need to tell people what your culture is. Just by people being in contact with you, people encountering you, people living in your orbit, they can speak to the culture that you have. And so when we say generosity is our way of life, the question I have for you is when people come around you, is it truly your way of life? Can people say one, two, three things about you? And in that top three, one of the things they will say is that this person is very generous, that this church, this house is a generous house. All right. That's our aspiration. Generos generosity has to become a way of life for us as a people. All right. Behaviors, the beliefs, the values, the symbols that we accept generally without even thinking. It's a reflex action when you say something is your way of life. You don't have to think about your culture. I remember my culture, um, the southwestern part of Nigeria, when you, you know, if you're really from a traditional household, when you greet elders, you bow your head. And so when you see someone who's older than you in my culture, you don't have to think, mm, I think I should bow my head now because it's our culture. No, you just by reflex, by default, that's what you do. And that's the thing about generosity. If it is your way of life, it means that that's your default state. You just are a generous person. You're just a liberal person. You're someone who spreads and you don't withhold. You're someone who scatters, all right, and you don't hide your valuables without thinking. And it's passed on by imitation or by communication from place to place. But before I go into what Paul said to, Corinth, to the Corinthian church, let's talk about how God, what's God's disposition to generosity. And I want to approach this from a very specific angle because there are many ways to approach God's disposition to generosity. We can go through the Old Testament and we can see how, you know, 
God expected generosity from people, but let's not go there today. Let's think about this from the platform of the person or the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. When you look at Jesus, the Bible says about Jesus that Jesus is the express image of the Father. He's the express image of the invisible God. That's what the Bible calls him. Um, and Jesus himself, he's talking to us. This is John chapter 5 and verse 19. He's basically saying, I'm paraphrasing now. He's basically saying to us in John 5, 19, that anything you see me do, it's because that's what the Father is doing. That's important. That statement is so, so critical. Jesus says that, I tell you the truth. The Son, which is me, can by himself do nothing. He does all. Only what he sees the Father doing. Only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. So when Jesus came to the pool of Bethesda and saw many sick people and he healed just one guy and walked away, that's what the Father was doing. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick unto death and he waited many days before he took his journey, it's because that's what the Father was when Jesus, when gangster, took a whip, you know, and whipped people out of the temple because they were selling, and he said, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. It's because that's what the Father was doing. When Jesus healed, delivered, spoke, he was an express image of the Father. He did nothing unless he saw his Father do it. And why is this important? It's important because when we look at how Jesus approached or observed generosity, it's instructive for us. So the first example, the Bible says to us that this would be in Mark, I remember Mark chapter 21, I think, from verse 41 to 44, just search it out in your Bible, um, that Jesus, he's sitting at the temple, and he sits very close to the offering basket, a collection, whatever the Bible, I don't remember what King James calls it. And he is doing something, don't forget, Jesus is doing what the Father is doing. The Bible says he's observing how the people are given. Okay? Jesus. Remember Jesus was a busy guy? Jesus was this guy who always had people around him. People were always thronging him, looking for miracles. So he gets to a point and he sees that this is, he catches a glimpse of what the Father is doing. And he tells everyone, hold on, hold on. Give me, give me about 15 minutes. I need to do something very important. And he sits in the temple, he positions himself very close to the offering basket and he's looking at how and what the people are given. That tells you that God is interested in how and what you give. God is interested in how and what you give. Jesus is looking and then that's where the story of the widow's mite comes from. This, this widow comes in and gives her two mites and Jesus uses that as an illustration all right, to teach the concept of generosity. And this lady is actually foreshadowing the New Testament form of generosity, which is that God is not looking for a tithe of you in the New Testament. He wants your all. Not to say God wants you to take your entire paycheck and bring it to him, but he wants you to have a mindset that he owns everything. And so when we have discussions and um, arguments, philosophical and theological arguments about tithing, it's laughable for a New Testament Christian. I assure you, it is laughable because that's the flaw in terms of New Testament. So anyways, this lady, this widow, is having, you know, she's, she's foreshadowing something. And Jesus looks at her and says to the disciples, this woman gave more than everybody else, even though she gave just two coins. Because of the little that she has, she's giving everything and whatnot. So God is interested in how and what you give. That's the first thing you have to, be, you have to understand. So imagine that when you are being generous, not just to, you know, to people in need, family members, the less privileged in society, you know, when you give offerings, when you give tithes, whatever it is that you give, that Jesus is interested in how and what you give. He observed what they gave. He observed what they gave. The second thing I learned about generosity in, you know, from my understanding is that generosity erects an altar for you. I'll explain that in a second. Generosity, generosity erects an altar on your behalf. An altar is a spiritual infrastructure that has a voice in the spirit realm and can speak on behalf of people. So you have evil altars, and so all these guys who dabble in you know, witchcraft and satanism and diabolic stuff, they build altars for demons. All right? We can't go into the 
technicalities around why an altar is built the way it's built. Not, not my emphasis for today. But the truth is that generosity erects an altar in the spirit realm for you. And what happens is that altars speak. Altars have a voice. Altars speak where you cannot speak. Altars can go places you cannot go. Can go places that you cannot go. How, how, how do I know this? Let me give you an example. When you read scriptures, let me backtrack before I get into that. When Jesus was on the earth, it's important to understand as he did and performed his earthly ministry, his focus was the Jews. As a matter of fact, Jesus is explicit. In Matthew chapter 10, you would find somewhere, he says to his disciples when he sends them out, he says, do not go to the Gentiles and do not go to the Samaritans. Go only to the Jews. Do not heal their sick. Do not cast out their devils. Do not de don't do don't extend ministry to them. This is not their time. This is not their time. Go only to the Jews. Jesus tells them in Matthew chapter 10. When we get to Matthew chapter 15, the Bible says that now Jesus is in a bit of a situation because a Gentile woman comes to him for help. He already told them. We're not ministering to the Gentiles. That's not our focus. And Jesus goes on to, first he ignores her for a while. Matthew 15. He ignores her for a while. He doesn't answer her. And then when he's going to answer her, he says, lady, I'm not sent to you. I'm only sent to the lost house of Israel. In other words, emphasizing what he had said before. And his disciples come to him and say, master, she's a Gentile. We're not here to minister. Send her away. Send her away. But he eventually he's able to meet her need. Because this woman, she's different. Can, a different copy from her. We'll talk about that in 2025. But then there is a second Gentile in the Bible that Jesus gives attention to. He's a centurion. So the Bible is talking to us in Luke chapter 7 that there is a particular man who's a centurion. A centurion is a Roman soldier, right? Like a captain in the army or something. He's a Gentile. A Gentile. But in the case of this man, his servant is sick unto death and Jews come to Jesus and say, we want you, listen to this, we want you to come and attend to the issue that this centurion has right now. And Jesus is hesitant because he's a Gentile. I'm not going out of my way to minister to a Gentile, not because Jesus is racist, but in terms of the strategy of heaven, the timing and the season was a season for the Jews. That was the strategic move of the Holy Spirit, the Jews. So Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth, you know all that stuff. But they compel him to go. And the only way they're able to get him to respond to this Gentile's need is that they say to him, look, he's kind to us. Not only that, he has built us a church. He's built us a synagogue. When Jesus heard that about this man, the Bible says, Jesus Christ says, I will go. I will go. So his generosity towards God and the people of God raised a memorial, an altar on his behalf so that on the, the day that he had need of Jesus, he was able to get the attention of the Lord. Another example you find is in Acts chapter 10. This is another, another person who is called a Gentile in the Bible. This is Cornelius and his household. The Bible says in Acts chapter 10 from verse 1, Cornelius is praying or something like that. And an angel of the Lord appears to Cornelius and says to him these words, that your giving, your acts of generosity and your prayers, your prayers and your generosity, your acts of generosity have come up before God as a memorial, an altar, an, an, you know, an everlasting, an eternal altar before God on your behalf. And that's why God sent an angel and God sent Peter to Cornelius' house because your generosity builds an altar on your behalf. There's another example in the Bible I love this particular psalm, Psalms number 20. Psalms 20 from verse 1. The Bible says in New King James Version that the Lord would hear you in the day of trouble. If I were you, I would say amen, a big amen to that. It says that the name of the God of Jacob defend you. I would say another amen to that if I were you. It says may he send you help from the sanctuary. I would say another amen to that if I were you and strengthen, strengthen you out of Zion. Say amen to that too. Then he says this, may he remember all your offerings and accept all your bond sacrifices. So your generosity raises an altar to God. And one of the things about altars, I'm not teaching about altars today, but it's just a conversation that we're having. It's, it's, it's pertinent here is that altars are built on the platform of consistency. 
The strength of an altar is in its consistency. It's in the consistency that, that services that altar, that gives the altar potency. And by the way, when you get to Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 8, you understand that the Bible says that the prayers of the saints are stored up in vials in heaven and that these prayers are mixed with something called incense. Incense. And it's sacrifice that causes incense to ascend unto God. All right. Sacrifice and prayers, are, you know, prayers and incense are mixed together and then God is able to dispatch answers to you. So God's perspective towards generosity is this. God is interested in how you give. He's interested in what you give. He is looking. He is looking. And your generosity erects an altar before God for you. So what was Paul teaching the Corinthians? I like the fact that I don't have to do too much excavation to get points for this particular teaching because Paul is very clear. He brings out five main points when he's talking to the Corinthians about giving. The first thing he's saying to them, what was his message to the Corinthians? His first message to them was this, finish what you start. <laughs> finish what you start. I don't know about you. I remember when I was a very young Christian. When I was a young Christian, I, I was... um. I struggled with this. How, you know, January 1st, you sit down, you write all these fantastic New Year's resolutions. And you're like, well, this year I'm going to give my tithe consistently. I would never be late on my tithe and I would never spend my tithe. I don't know if you've ever done that before. Maybe I'm the only one that falls into this category. But can we be honest? We're an honest house here, okay? That was me, my tithe. And then when you get to around February 14, hallelujah, you're checking on your savings account. They're not quite aligned. It looks like your, both your accounts have covid then you start to negotiate with the Lord and say, God, you know, I'm really struggling with this 10% thing. All right. So you kind of break it up. And then by March, tithing is out of the window. You just give your offerings as it were. And then next year you vow again <laughs> that you're going to do it. That's similar to what the Corinthians had done. They had made some commitments about their generosity. They were going to do certain things or they started out well and the fire, the passion had died out. But Paul is saying to them, finish what you start. And I'm here to say to you too as well, finish what you start. When you commit to God, I want to be generous. I want to do this. I'm going to start this. You made a commitment to someone. I'm going to give you this. Or in your, sometimes you don't have to make the commitment to the person. You've made the commitment to God. <laughs> I don't know about you, but this has happened to me before too. Sorry, I'm just going to be honest here. There are some seasons of my life where I made a commitment and said, okay, me and God agreed on something. I'm going to do this for this person. I never told the person. I haven't told the person. I didn't tell the person yet. But when things got a bit funny, I was like, well, at least I didn't tell them yet. Thank God. <laughs> just move on. But the truth is, once you have committed to God, it's, it's, you're, it's binding. So finish what you start. All right? So don't, maybe don't commit yourself to too much because it's the consistency of your generosity that matters. Don't forget your altar, the strength of the altar is based on the consistency of your generosity. Be, be consistent. Finish what you start. So this is what Paul was saying to them. Second Corinthians 8 and verse 11. He says to them, verse 10 rather, here's my advice. Let me counsel you guys. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago. Last year, you were the first who wanted to give. I don't know about you, but those people who are very excited to give, like, yeah, I pledge. I'm going to do, I'm going to do, I'm going to do. He says that just hold your horses one second. All right. You were the first to begin doing it. But he says, now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness that you showed in the beginning be matched by much now. By your giving, giving proportion to what you have. So his first message to them was be consistent. Don't start and abandon. Finish what you started. Don't forget the Bible says that no man who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the for the kingdom. Finish what you started. The second message that he had to them was this: everyone can be generous. Everyone can be generous. He's comparing the Corinthian church to the church in Macedonia. The Macedonian church was a very poor church. And Paul said that. He said they're, they're poor, but they gave. They gave even in their poverty. They gave. Everyone can be generous, irrespective of your level. And when we talk about generosity, like I said, it's in proportion to what you have. So to the person who has $50 million in the bank, generosity looks different from the person that has, you know, $50 in his account. For you, it might be just making four quarters out of a dollar and making sure that when you see a homeless guy, you have something to give the person. Generosity, everyone can be generous. Not, I'm, I'm, sp I'm specifically today, by the way, we are addressing generosity when it comes to money. All right. But generosity is beyond money. Generosity with your time, you know, with your compliments, um, generosity in just 
how you handle people in general. But here today, we're, we're talking about specifically generosity when it comes to money. He says everyone can be generous. Everybody has something to offer that somebody else needs. And so this is what he says about the Macedonian church. 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 2, he says that they are being tested by many troubles. In other words, that church is going through a hard time. Some of you right now are going through a tough season. The world is going through a tough time. All right. He says that they've been tested by many troubles and they are very poor. But but they also filled with abundant joy, which has overflowed in rich generosity. So they were generous even in their poverty. A lot of times we look for reasons and excuses not to be able to give, give to people, give to the poor, give to your friends in need, give to family members, give to parents, give to the body of Christ, give to church, give to, you know, kingdom projects. We say, I don't have enough. I don't have enough. Everyone can be generous. And I'll get to that in a, in a minute as to why everyone can be generous. Anyways, I move on to the third thing he said to them. He said to them, give willingly, give cheerfully and not under pressure. I love that. He says that do not fall prey to gimmicks and pressure. You know how, I don't know, I don't know about you. I've been in some services. <laughs> oh my God. I've been in some church services where there was so much pressure to give. It was almost like if you didn't give, you look like the odd one out. I don't know if, has anyone ever been in such a service before where you, you give grudgingly? You're like, oh God, if I don't give now, everyone has an envelope. I'm going to dance forward without an envelope. Shame on me. And you just felt like I'm pressured to give. And you give it without, you just said, let me just put something in the envelope. Um, some people go as far, because I, I, I used to be an usher many you know years back. Some people go as far as to put empty envelopes in the basket just because they don't want to be seen to not be given anything. Now, let me say this to you, by the way. Don't ever feel such pressure to give. That offering is not acceptable to God. You might as well have spent it on McDonald's, something terrible for your health. It's not acceptable to God. God, the Bible says that God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver. Give cheerfully, give willingly, give from what you have, and don't feel any pressure whatsoever to give. I remember many years ago, when my wife and I just got married, one of the things I said, I said, I, said, I, I stopped doing certain things because I felt like they were showy in terms of generosity. So when you come to each other and they say, oh, this guy doesn't have an envelope. He means he's not giving an offering and he drives a Mercedes. That's, that's just ridiculous. Don't feel pressure. Paul says, bring from your heart. Bring willingly. Bring it with rejoicing. Bring cheerfully because you're privileged to be participating in this. But don't do it under pressure. Don't do it under duress. That is a problem. Don't give to receive. Don't give to be seen or to make an impression. Give willingly. Give cheerfully. That was his message to the church. He says, whatever you give is acceptable. 2 Corinthians 8 and 12. If you give it eagerly, it's acceptable. If, if. Whenever you see if in the Bible, please don't neglect it. Some people say, the Bible says, I will eat the good of the land. I receive it. I'll eat the good of the land. Well, the Bible doesn't say you will eat the good of the land. The Bible says, if you are willing and obedient, if is a powerful word. In scripture, it speaks to conditions. So it says that whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly and give according to what you have, not what you don't have. So no one is asking you, go take a credit card so you can give. No one is asking you, go take a line of credit so you can give. No one is asking you, go borrow to give. No, give from what you have. Second Corinthians 9, 7, it says that you must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully. I hope you understand that lesson. Don't give reluctantly. Don't, and I love the fact that, you know, now we are online, we're at home. There's no pressure to give. If you, if you feel like you have something to give, you give it. No one even knows when and when you don't give. It doesn't really matter. And if we, when we do come back to our church building as well, don't feel pressure to give. Give willingly, give cheerfully, so that the blessings can accrue to you. Can, can I say this to you? Um, this is just, just me being honest. This is something that I should say to pastors, but I can say it to you. You know, some years back, because I, I, I tend to take, I detach myself from situations and observe, especially when it comes to the body of Christ and, you know, trends. And I started to observe the body of Christ as to why, I had one of the questions I had, I have many, by the way, many, I tell you guys, I have many burdens. One of the questions I had at that time, that season of my life was, why are Christians not being blessed despite giving over. I'm not talking about tithing. Tithing is 
I don't consider, with all due respect, I don't consider tithing given or generosity I, I, I don't personally i'm talking about people who give like sacrificially like these people sow seeds hefty seeds and they come and I, I i came to a conclusion that the reason why is because they were not given for the right reasons the reason why is because they were given to receive because they thought that god was a money doubler because we heard a sermon that said if you bring this now within seven days you will get seven seven breakthroughs every day for the next seven days. You will get a phone call with money in your account, you know, and that kind of stuff. And so you see people, but I realized that the, the the pastors were being blessed, and the reason why the pastors were being blessed. And by the way, this is not to speak about pastors that dip money into the hands of the church. I'm talking about pastors that are legitimately blessed by God. The reason why is because the pastors know the real way to give, and so most of us as pastors, you know, my my colleagues in that. In that season, I did, my diagnosis was that we couldn't trust people to give unless we scared them and tell them that if you don't give, you're cursed with a curse. If you don't give, your tight things will be tight. Your heavens will be brass. You know, <laughs> all kinds of curses and stuff. And so because of that, the people run and give their tight, but they're not giving from their heart. They're giving because they don't want their heavens to be closed. And when you give for those reasons, you will not be blessed, I assure you. As a matter of fact, your life is as good as not giving at all. But when we know better, I mean, I know better as a pastor, most pastors know better, that I give because I love God. I, I truly give because I love the house of Jesus Christ. I give because Jesus is my Lord, and whatever he, we've crossed that line, whatever he would have me give, whether it's to the church, whether it's to another church, whether it's to the poor, it's because I love him. And so I see the results of giving. I'm not giving to receive. I'm giving because I love God. And so those blessings would always accrue to us, but we don't trust the people enough that when we say, just love God and give. You say, I don't trust them. They might not give enough. No, let me tell you this. Love the Lord and give from a place of love. It will be well with you, all right? Don't give to receive. Don't give so that you can get double next week. You might be very disappointed. Um, I've had people who went to, <laughs> I actually had a story about a guy who said he gave a seed one time and he wanted to go back and receive the seed, ask the church to give it, return the money to him. Because he was manipulated out of it, he, 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 he was, and in, in in reality, he 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 was because the the climate in which he gave that was very. There was a lot of pressure. I had to counsel this friend. He's a friend of mine. I love him. I said, my friend, please, please let the money go, let it go. All right. The guy was grieved. So imagine that. Not only do you not receive, but you're also dealing with stress. So don't do that. Give from what you have. Give only. Don't give under pressure. As Paul taught the church. Another thing he taught them was this, that there is a harvest that there's a reward for giving. He was very clear about this. He said, remember this, 2 Corinthians 9 and 6, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. For he who plants generously will get a generous crop. There is a harvest for giving. The thing about the harvest is that you don't know when it will be and you don't know what form it will be. Okay, let me say that again. When you give, you don't know when the harvest will come. Because God is the Lord of the harvest. And you don't know in what form. Some of you say, well, I've been giving, and it still looks like my finances are tight. Are you healthy? Okay. You don't know. You don't know what form your harvest came. That's the truth of it. Yes, a lot of times it would come financially, but sometimes it can come in any form whatsoever. And you really don't know what's responsible for all the other things in your life that, are, that seem to be working supernaturally. You really don't know. So Paul says to them, He's encouraging them that give cheerfully because when you sow bountifully, he says you reap bountifully. I can't stay on that one for now. But the last thing he says to them is this. I want you to excel in giving. Now, he's talking to the Corinthian church. And we know this church. They had prophets in their midst. They were very charismatic. Everyone had a gift of the spirit. They had eloquent people. They were rich. So he says to them, excel in service. So if I'm talking to us as a church. Excel in service. You're serving on Dream Team. That's awesome. Excel in that. Excel in prayer. That's amazing. You should. Excel in the Word. That's amazing. You should. Excel in your spiritual life and your spiritual growth and, you know, holiness and consecration. That is amazing. You should excel in that. But he says, I need you to excel also in giving. Don't leave that. Don't neglect that. I know there are weightier matters of, 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 of our faith, but do not neglect that as well. Excellence speaks to doing the best you can with what you have. Excellence is not perfection. And so what is excellent for me might be different from what's excellent for you. Excel in giving. What makes your generosity excellent 
is not just the value of what you give. It's the quality of what you give. It's the heart that gives it. It's how you give it. It's how prompt you are to obey. So think about all those factors. For many people, you remember the story of um, Abraham. The Bible says God says to Abraham, give me your son, your only son Isaac. The Bible says the very next morning, early, early in the morning, Abraham stood up and went to the place that God told him to sacrifice his son. That's how it is. It's excellence in generosity. Don't just excel in your service. Don't just excel in prayer. Don't just excel in other things that you do. I'm serving God with my time, with my talents. That's awesome. But that never, that would never become a reason or a justification for you not to excel in giving. I remember I was listening to a particular minister, a gospel minister, Nathaniel Bassi actually said this. And he was having a conference with worship leaders um, or music ministers, gospel music ministers. And he was saying to them that one of the things, the reason why many gospel music, music artists are poor is because they believe that their sacrifice to God is their worship. And that's true. But he says, your sacrifice to God is your worship. It will bring the presence of God on your life. The anointing of God will flow in your life. But your pocket, your bank account will be as as deficient as anything. There are principles in the kingdom. All right. So don't say I'm serving God with my time. I just do things where, when I can. So that's not enough. That's not enough. Excel in giving as well. I want to tie this up. And for this last segment, I just want to speak from my heart because I feel like it's important. All of us, think about it. Every single one of us has a philosophy around money. The truth is that money has a grip on our lives in a very significant way. And depending on what household, if you grew up in a house where people said money does not grow on trees, every day you heard that there's no money, there's no money. There is a philosophy that you have about money. There's a mindset you have about money. There's something that money does for every single one of us. For some of us, we consider money to be a defense. Some of us see money as a source of security. Some of us see money as happiness. You know, <laughs> it's amazing. When your bank account is, is fat, you're excited. When your bank is your bank account is low or you're you're depressed. Like it, there is a direct correlation between the balance in your checking account and your mental health. That's not okay. Some of us see money as something for enjoyment. Some of us see money as something for status. And all of us, I assure you, I assure you, this is actually one of the things that I do, you know, we do when we're doing premarital um, mentoring for couples. There is a questionnaire that they take. It's a very, very robust questionnaire. It affects every area of their lives. And then, you know, this particular tool that we use gives us a summary of the profile of the, of the couple. And one of the summaries that it gives us their financial summary as to how each of them views money. So if you have a couple, for example, where the husband views money as a source of control and the wife views money as a source of enjoyment, you can see some of the clashes that would, you can already, pro, you know, project and forecast some of the issues that that marriage would have. Because the man would try to use money to control the wife, whereas the woman is just like, look, let's just enjoy life. And so, you know, so money means something to every one of us. It's not, I'm not saying it's all bad, but the truth of the matter is that we need to see money for what it is. It's simply a tool. And God bless the bishop because I remember on, on a prayer call this morning, you know, there was a prayer point that was raised around lust of the eye and let the death of materi materialism, you know, let us have the death of materialism in our lives. That is, an, that is a spirit-inspired prayer point. Let me talk about marriages again. One of the leading causes of, one, the number one, not one of the, the number one cause for marital issues is financial problems. Think about that. Just think about what I just said, that the number one cause of marital issues is financial problems. I won't tell you what the second one is, all right? Talk about that during love month. <clears throat> Glory to God. Money. So imagine, just imagine what this means. You're talking about a family of Christian, spirit-filled believers. The Holy Spirit is present in your home, but the joy of the Lord is absent in your home because of money. Can you see that money is a God? Everything is going smoothly. We're loving each other. You know, wake up in the morning. Oh, baby, I'm just so glad I chose you. In fact, I'll pick you 10 times over. And then when money's kind of down, everyone is agitated. The man is like, please, 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 don't choose me 10 times over. I don't, 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 don't want to hear that today. And the woman, the woman is, everyone is on edge because money. And I, I get that. The Bible does say that money does answer to all things. But I think a lot of us have put money above God. Above God. We lose our joy because we don't have money. It should never be. Your net worth should never determine your self-worth. Ever. Ever. 
ever. And I love Paul. Paul says, I'm able to abound. I thrive when I have nothing. I thrive when I have much. It makes no difference to me. Money is, a, is simply a tool. Don't, so don't see money as a source of security, as a source of defense. None of those things. God is your security. God is your defense. God is your joy. God, your image comes from God, not from the car you drive. From how or from how long your driveway is, or how many German cars you have in your driveway, it it and I I have to admit that I remember growing up, maybe not growing up, maybe in my my early twenties, I had a I had a now I know that I had a I had a warped mentality about money because one of the things I wanted at that time I, I used to say that time that I wanted to drive a Bentley every day to work. I'm not saying you shouldn't drive a Bentley if you can afford a Bentley. That's amazing. It's not wrong with that. But I just like why did I want that? When I think about it, it was just because of the image, the status of it. Now I have none of those desires anymore. Like I'm like, I, I don't really, as far as I have a car that doesn't break down on the highway and my kids are safe in it, my wife is safe in it and she has a mirror. Apparently the mirror needs to have a light so she can do her makeup in the car. It's a perfect car for us. You know what I mean? What does money mean to you? And this is what informs how we approach money. And so when people start talking about money, especially in church, people get very agitated, like, oh, money, they're going to raise an offering. I'm not raising an offering today. As a matter of fact, we don't even have to announce offering today. So you can have time to think about it and how you want to proceed with your life of generosity. We all have a philosophy about money, usually from how we grew up. Make sure that it's a scriptural philosophy about money. And your philosophy around money should be this, that God is the source of all things and that there is no scarcity with God. That is your philosophy. There is no scarcity with him. And so because of this philosophy, stewardship, stewardship is at the heart of generosity for you and I. Stewardship just simply means management. You and I own nothing. We own nothing. Hard truths. If you think you own something, you haven't done what we talked about last week, which was this dying to self thing. When we come into a relationship with God, we realize quickly that we are stewards. And there are five things we are stewards of, forties and an hour. Our time, our talents, our treasures, uh, I can't remember the other thing now, and your relationships. You are a steward. You are a steward. You own nothing. You don't own your life. You don't own the money. And so what stewards do, a steward is like the CEO of a company. A lot of times the CEO of a company is not the owner of the company. He's a manager of the resources of the company. So yes, the CEO pays himself a salary, clearly. But if a CEO pays himself all the money in the company as a, as a salary and there's nothing left to grow the company, to expand the company, very quickly he will get fired because he's a terrible steward. And the same thing goes for you. You are a CEO. Don't think you're an owner. You're not an owner. You are a manager. And so your job is to manage your resources in such a way that there is always leftover for God to call on you at night and say, you see that lady over there? I need you to help her. Hear me well, Lighthouse, because I need us to move to where we need to be as a, as a people. If God hasn't spoken to you in the last one year about something that he wants you to do, it's because you're a bad steward. Yes, it's because he cannot trust you that you will do what he's asking you to do. All of us are stewards of God's resources for the kingdom of God. We pay ourselves a salary, so that's what we live on. That's your, you know, your house where you live. Blah, blah, blah. So for some of us, you're earning $5,000 a month. All of a sudden, you start earning $15,000 a month. Say amen. That's a prayer. Amen. Amen. All right. All of a sudden, you just go buy a bigger house. You buy two extra cars. Then you need more Converse shoes or you, you grab it from Converse to Yeezys or something. You spend all the money, and even though your God has trusted you with more, you don't have more left over to do God's work. And God is looking at you like, what is wrong with this dude? Do you, did you even bother to ask me why I brought the increase your way? Did you bother? Because we are stewards. We are stewards. The Bible says that what do we have that we have not received? And so if we have received it, the day that, you know, it's like you, me and my kids, for example, if we go out, um, maybe we pop, pop, pop by the drive-thru and pick up some ice cream or something. And I say, hey, you know, dude, can I have some of your ice cream? And he says to me, no, that this is my ice cream. Get your ice cream. You're looking at it like, dude, if only you knew that you wouldn't have any ice cream right now, if not for me. And that I can also take the ice cream from you and give you none. You think you have control of what you're And God is looking at you like, are you seriously doing that right now? Are you really going to have this conversation with me? Right now, we are stewards. We are stewards. I personally don't believe that we can be generous towards God. We can be, 
in practice, but in reality, when you think about it, you can be generous towards God because he gave you everything. You're just being responsible towards God. That's what you can be. You're, you're being a steward, you know, in terms of the resources that God has given to you. We are stewards for him. And so the Bible says that to him whom much has been given, much will be required. If God has given you much, trust me, more will be required from you. If God has given you less, well, less will be required from you. And it's the faithfulness. The principle is that it's the faithfulness in the little things that causes increase. When you, when you see a child of God that is progressively increasing, financially specifically, you need to ask about his stewardship. Stewardship is everything. You know, Rick Warren is the pastor of Saddleback Church. He's an author of the book, Purpose Driven Church, Purpose Driven Life. That book is the top-selling book of all time, I think probably after the Bible, translated to hundreds of languages. But the thing about Rick Warren that a lot of people don't know is this. Rick Warren was already giving God 90% of his income as tithe. This is what you call reverse tithing. Someone leaves on 10% and gives 90% to God. And God blessed him tremendously. And some of us say, well, only if, if I had a million, I would give more. You would not. I promise you, you would not. You will give. Uh, <laughs> you will find more things that you need to do with the million. He was. He gives ninety. Let, let me let me tie this up. You know, many years ago, a few years ago, not many years ago, five or six years ago, a man, you know, called me. He's a he's a he's a minister. He's a he's a Caucasian dude and he's a prophet. I've never met him physically in my life. You know, I we did something for a particular ministry that touched the heart of that ministry, and he was affiliated with the ministry, so. He just called to express his gratitude. But since the man is a prophet, he started to prophesy. One of the things the man said was this, that, you know, he said that in, he, he does reverse tithing. So he pays, he gives 90% and leaves on 10%. And he said that, you know, God will take me and my family to a place in our lifetime where we'll be able to give 90% and leave on 10%. I said aloud, amen. When he hung up the phone, I thought, I was like, do you know how much money you have to make to be able to give out 90 and live on 10%? And not live a bad life. And I understood very quickly that if I was ever going to get there, I need to start showing God acts of faith. That I'm, I'm, I'm making progress. All right. So I started out, obviously, with tithing consistently first. So deal with the consistency part. And then I started saying every year I will increase from tithing. I would go up 1%, 2% as my capacity. So I can go from 10% a year minimum. To 13 and if i go to 13 i would never go back to below 13 the next year maybe i want to go from 13 to 20 to 25 and so i set those benchmarks for myself to track my progress so that god knows that if you don't increase my income and my given percentage is increasing for any reason it means that god is cheating me <laughs> so he needs to work out the balance it's not my job i don't have any desire to spend my time looking for how to increase my income anymore. How about I think about? But I put the pressure on the one who I'm stewarding his resources to say, I will do as much as I can. I will steward properly. In other words, I would manage what I have well for myself and my family so that what's left can be enough to do the work of the kingdom. So have, have given goals. is my. I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. Have a goal. Have an objective. Have an objective. Manage the money that God has given you, manage it well. If God cannot come to you and say, remember, see that lady? You're at the grocery store. You see that lady? She's a single mother. Her grocery, her grocery bill is $200. I want you to pay for it. It means you're not a good steward. It means that God has seen that the way you manage your finances is you spend everything and then whatever is left, you give God. As opposed to, let me manage it well so that there's more left over to do kingdom work materialism, the love of money, the Bible says is the root of all evil. It just leads to greed and it's an unending... Have you ever seen people who have more and they go for more, they chase more and they're never happy? We've seen rich people, wealthy people who've taken their own lives because they were dealing... It, it, it creates an emptiness in you. I'm not saying you should be poor. You will, you will definitely not be poor, okay? And I'm not poor, all right? And I will not be poor. I'm saying to you, understand responsibility and let us be excellent, excellent in our generosity. Many of us struggle to be generous because we struggle to receive generosity. Some of us are like, I don't want anybody to help me. I want to help myself. You're going to struggle to be generous. Excellent in generosity. If God has given you much, he will demand much from you. <laughs> he will demand much from you. 
And don't say, some of you are saying, I'm just a student. When I start working, when I start earning big money. Yeah, if you don't have a job, obviously, you don't have anything to give. Everything your parents give you is for a specific reason. I can understand that. But don't despise your youth. God can do more with willing people. I probably told you guys some of these stories before. When I met the Lord, I was 20. Um, I was 21, 21 years old when I gave my first car to the church. I was 22 when I gave my second. I was 23 when I gave my third car. So every year for three years in a row, I was giving cars. So the question you need to ask yourself is, I was a student, by the way. How was I getting money to buy a new car every year? And these were not, I wasn't paying a monthly payment on the cars. How do you think the money came to buy the cars every year? My first one I remember was, oh, we're giving it, we're buying, wanted to buy a brand new car for my pastor as a birthday gift. I think he was turning 40 or something at the time, contributing money. The money was short. I went to the dealership to pick up his brand new car. The money was short and I dropped my car there and said, at this, I drive, drove his car off. The second year, the third year, three years, and I was a student. So don't, don't, don't put a limit on what God can do. You can have abundance. My second year in university was the last time my dad ever paid my tuition. Ever. How? How? So don't despise, don't despise your own youth and don't let anyone despise your youth. If you're faithful with little, so I said, from what you have and the principles work, God would bless you. The greatest act of generosity ever is the salvation, the, the death of Jesus on the cross for your salvation. And so for people who struggle to accept that and say, are you just saying I just have to accept his, his sacrifice and I'm saved? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Stewardship starts when you come into the kingdom. When God can look at what you have and say, this is mine, this is mine. And he's testing your heart to see if you're really with him or you're using him to serve your own purposes. If you're trying to use God, God knows. He sees your motives. So if you're here, you don't know the Lord, you don't understand anything about stewardship, you haven't even accepted his own generosity towards you, I want to encourage you today to make that decision. Paul's, you know, Paul's life was spent preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, the goodness of the gospel, and after that, he was able to build and establish doctrine. So don't start practicing generosity if you don't have a relationship with Christ. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure you subscribe to our podcast channel. If you want to be a blessing to others, share the message. To stay connected, Download our app and follow us on Instagram at Lighthouse Church Ottawa. We love you.